Jesus knew that he was going to die and that it was going to be no ordinary death. We call the day that he died Good Friday. And it was good, very good, amazingly good. Uh, You know, we might even say that it was unbelievably good, except that it actually happened and we should believe it. Jesus suffered so that we can be set free. Jesus died so that we can live forever. Jesus was the good shepherd laying down his life for his sheep. That's why we call it Good Friday. But for anyone who loved Jesus, that Friday seemed anything but good. It must have seemed to the disciples like Sad Friday or Tragic Friday or the worst Friday in the history of the world. As soon as it was morning, the Jewish leaders bound Jesus and delivered him to Pilate. Pilate was the Roman ruler in that region. He was the one who would decide whether Jesus lived or died. And Pilate wasn't convinced that Jesus had done anything wrong. In fact, he wanted to release Jesus and be done with him. But Pilate was more concerned about people liking him than doing the right thing. So he gave the crowd in Jerusalem an option. I will release one prisoner, this murderer, Barabbas, or the king of the Jews. Who should I release? They chose Barabbas instead of Jesus. Then what shall I do with Jesus, Pilate asked. Crucify him, the crowd shouted. So the soldiers took Jesus and led him away. They clothed him in a purple robe and gave him a crown of thorns. They pretended to worship Jesus, but it was all a joke. They struck him on the head and they spat on him. If you could have seen Jesus being led to his death that afternoon, everything would have looked upside down. Here was the maker of all things, too weak to carry his own cross. Here was the loving king killed between two thieves. Here was God's beloved son, mocked and mistreated by anyone and everyone. And there he was, Jesus, the Christ, hanging from a cross. The sky went black because it was a day of judgment, and Jesus cried out to heaven for help. But this was a time to feel the curse of the law, not the smile of God. Jesus had become sin for us. He breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The disciples were scared and confused. The world was dark and sad. Everything seemed wrong. But one soldier, one Roman soldier at the foot of the cross got it right. Truly, he said, this man was the Son of God. And if Jesus was the Son of God, then maybe that last breath was not actually the last word from Jesus. Jesus knew that he was going to die and that he wouldn't stay dead. 
Friday was dark and sad. Saturday was stone cold silent. But Sunday, the third day, was not just another day or another week. No, it was another age. A new time had begun. The biggest story had turned a critical page and the world would never be the same. At the break of dawn, Mary Magdalene and a group of women went to the tomb. They thought they would find Jesus there and put perfume on his dead body. What they found instead was a complete surprise. On the outside of the tomb, the stone had been rolled away, and on the inside of the tomb, there was no Jesus. The women wondered what this meant. But before they could think very long, two angels as bright as the sun stood by them. Why do you seek the living among the dead? The angels asked. Jesus is not here. He is risen. Just as he said. Then the women remembered that Jesus had said that he would be raised on the third day. They had not understood what this meant. But now they did. The slithering serpent had not won after all. Death had been defeated. The wages of sin had been paid for. The long-awaited snake crusher had kept his promise, and all the promises of God would be forever kept in him. Mary and the other women ran back to tell the disciples what they had seen and heard. And at first, the disciples didn't believe them. A dead man? Back to life? What a fairy tale, they thought. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb to see for himself whether the good news was too good to be true. When he arrived at the tomb, it was even more amazing than he had dared to hope. Peter hurried into the tomb and found nothing but grave clothes. Well, Jesus wouldn't be needing those anymore. He wasn't dead any longer, and he wouldn't be dead ever again. In the days and weeks ahead, Jesus appeared to the disciples several times, in a room along the road, on the beach making breakfast. He even appeared to more than 500 of his followers at one time. God raised Jesus from the dead, and plenty of people saw him with their own two eyes. The light of the world was still shining. The bread of life was still alive. The true vine was the first fruits of a new hope of resurrection from the dead. It turns out that the best news in the history of the world was too good not to be true. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Father in heaven, thank you that this is a true story. Thank you, Father, that you raised Jesus from the dead. Thank you that the death that death couldn't hold him, that the grave is empty, and that Good Friday was good because of Resurrection Sunday. Here now in this place, Father, on Wednesday, chapel here at Sterling College, as we bring these two moments, the cross and the empty tomb together, I pray that you would be with us. As Pastor Joe comes and preaches about the resurrection, about Good Friday, about Jesus dying and rising again, I pray that our hearts and minds would be prepared for this message. And then as we sing in response, Lord, as we shout and sing praises in response and musical worship later, I pray for that time too.
Thank you for all who have gathered here in this place, the students, the employees, uh, prospective students, uh, anyone and everyone that's here in this room gathered as part of the Warrior family to celebrate the good news of uh, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. I pray for us now and ask for this time to be for your good, uh, for our good, and for your glory. In Jesus' risen name we pray, amen. Amen. It's good to be here with you for uh, Wednesday morning chapel uh, here back at Sterling College. And um, I'm just so thrilled to be here and to share some time with you during this holy week. Here recently I heard this interesting story about a tavern in the Westminster area of London, England called the Carlton Tavern. Um, it was a place that many people loved in the community. And so some of the the regulars that went to go there one afternoon saw that it was being boarded up and it was going to be demolished. And they were all surprised uh, because they hadn't heard any news about it and they were frustrated. They didn't know what to do in order to stop this uh, madness from happening. But without them knowing it, right under their noses, uh, the Carlton had some different owners who had different plans than theirs. Not only was this the very center of their community, but it had this interesting lore about it. Um, whenever the German army came during World War II, during the Blitz bombing raids of London, as the story goes, the Carlton was the only building left standing on the street, and so they felt like there was some mystical power within it. And in 2015, some of the regulars from that community, they wanted to make sure that this building was going to be around forever, and so they began to go through the process of making sure it was going to be protected as a historical landmark in their city. They were just a couple of days away when they heard that it was going to be demolished. Because the new owners, some people outside of town, had some different plans for the Carlton. It was old, they wanted to replace it, and like what's happening in many major cities throughout the world, and not least London, they take these old buildings, they demolish them, they build something new, and then some loft apartments above it, and that was going to be their plans. When the new owners heard that, that they, it was about to be protected forever and that their plans were going to be stopped, without getting the proper paperwork... They decided to go ahead and go through with the plans and demolish the building. This is how Councilwoman Rita Begum from Westminster City put it after she heard the news of what happened to the Carlton. She said, it was a shock. I have never seen anything like it in my entire life. The whole community is in shock. How did they think that they could do this without any approval? I think some of us have gone through a similar shocking experience, maybe not with a beloved building in our community, but something that we count on has been taken from us. And we feel like we have the rug pulled out from underneath us. And whenever these things happen, we usually engage in a whole host of questions, big questions like, why do these things happen? We didn't do anything wrong. Um, is there a God taking note of all these things? And if this God is good, why doesn't these things not happen? Like, why can't he stop these things? And is he making the world a better place where maybe this happened before, but will continue into the future? We also ask some responsive questions. Questions like, what should we do now? Should we fight back and take up arms and get some retaliation or revenge? Or maybe is this another opportunity for us to learn how to not be so attached to things, just to let it go and to live a detached type of life? Maybe some of us feel like we're on the other side of the equation in a story like this, where we've actually have done the damage in some regard. Uh, we've hurt somebody's feelings that they weren't quite expecting. It cut them deeply. Or we took advantage of somebody, or we gained from somebody else's loss. There was a day where we wanted to take advantage of something and cut a corner, so we looked both ways. We saw that nobody was watching us, so we took matters into our own hands. We thought we were going to get away with it. 
that nobody noticed. Why is there this lingering guilt and weight? Why am I so terrified that perhaps someone's going to find out or something's going to happen to me in response to something that I've done in my past? Whatever it might be, there's a heaviness and a weight whenever something is moved without our discretion and without any heads up. You know, as Paul was reading about the crucifixion and the resurrection stories once more, it made me think about all the range of emotions that are displayed in the last life of Jesus in his ministry. Emotions and experiences like anger and hatred and disdain and sadness and confusion and injustice, but also hope, reconciliation, new life, forgiveness, and peace. Because of that, this story is for all of us. Because all the things experienced by all those around Jesus on the last day of his life are things that you and I experience today. So I think this is just quite, quite the moment to be together. And I'm so glad that I'm here at Sterling to process all this with you this morning. And one of the things that we have to remind ourselves when we read from the Bible and hear its story is that it's a document that's trying to persuade us. It wants to move us from point A to point B. It tries to find us where we are, and it wants to move us to a different and more distinguished place. Um, Protestant scholar Doug O'Toddy said that a good sermon and, like, and also a good book of the Bible should give us the right type of nightmares, like Ebenezer Scrooge and Dickens' A Christmas Carol. Uh, the right type of nightmare will wake us up from sleep. It will remind us of the things that we've been ignoring that we need to engage with once again so that we, our life can be more full instead of empty like it has been in recent days. So we go to the Bible. We read the stories of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. One of the things we have to ask ourselves is, what's the right type of nightmare that the authors of these Jesus stories are trying to give us? Where are they meeting us? Where are they taking us? If we look at one of those stories of Jesus, we call it the Gospel of John. It's a story about how Jesus is God over all things. And John tells us that Jesus is God over all things right at the very beginning. He says that Jesus is the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God, and He was there at the beginning. And this God is not standing far off, but this God has taken on human form, and He's walking among us. Now this would have been some interesting news. This would have been a fresh perspective for John's first audience. Whenever they thought about gods, they thought about gods who were standing far off, just a little bit aloof from all of human life, kind of disinterested, maybe real irritable about human beings creating commotion on the earth. If gods ever came among the people in this culture, it was to lay down the law, the smackdown on somebody for doing something wrong, or it was to cause some, some mischief and to cause people to be, their lives to be turned upside down. But John's story about this God, Jesus' story, is different. God comes to restore, to renew, to rebuild what is broken, not to make more of a mess of things or to break it further. Now, this might seem like good news, right? Someone's coming to fix something, to fix all the problems, the brokenness in our world, but not everybody was excited about this development in the story because they were gaining so much off the brokenness of the world. So when the news was shared that someone new is coming around and they want to fix the world around they began to get worried. They began to try to take matters into their own hands, and they wanted to know if they could stop Jesus before he gets too carried away with things. Right at the beginning of John's story about Jesus, he gives us two things to look for. He says, when Jesus came and he walked among us, 
two different things happened. There was rejection by some, and there was embrace and reception by others. So what John tells us at the very beginning of his story is this. Watch for the clues. You're going to meet character after character in the story. And you're going to be asked to try to anticipate, is this person going to reject Jesus? Or are they going to receive Jesus? Now that seems kind of simple. Because we live life long enough and we can read people, we can read a room, we can almost anticipate what each person is going to do in this story that John tells us. But John's story is so compelling because the very people that we think would be eager to receive Jesus actually reject Jesus. And the people that when we meet them at first, we expect that they would reject Jesus or be just really disinterested in what he had to say. They're actually the, the ones who are most stirred, the ones who are most compelled to listen further about what Jesus wanted to say and do. So all in all, this story is heading in a new direction, something that we're not quite ready for. Now that's, that's good news. That's also bad news at the same time. It's bad because the very people eager to welcome someone like Jesus who were praying prayers and reading the Old Testament scriptures and they were preparing the way and they were longing for the day when God would visit his people, those very people were the ones to resist Jesus. And that resistance and that hatred for him came to like a fever pitch in John chapter 11 and 12 when they convened together and they were trying to figure out what they're going to do with this mess on their hands. They were worried that if Jesus' popularity got any bigger, that the Roman uh, armies and the Roman leaders that were occupying Palestine at the time, they were going to see it as social unrest and come and scatter the people of Israel. So they came up with a plan. We need to keep the peace, but we also need to get rid of Jesus. So in John 11 and 12, they come up with an idea. Let's take care of both those things with one action. We will give them Jesus and blame everything on him, and then all of our problems will be solved. Perhaps this is the nightmare that John's ancient audience would have been sensing as his story was going forward. Because remember, at the very beginning of the story, John told his people that this was God among them. So whenever there's this plan in the middle of the story to get rid of this God figure in the story, there's a bunch of questions probably circulating through the room as they were listening to the story for the first time. What's going to happen if God dies? Will there be an intervention to stop it? And if not... Will the world end? And what will become of all of us? If there was a time when Jesus could have addressed this upcoming nightmare of all these problems visiting him the very next day after this plan was hatched, it should have been at the later part of his gospel during the time of the Passover where he and his friends went to an upper room to have a meal together. But instead of plotting a way to secretly get out of Jerusalem and get to a place of safety, a safe house somewhere in the hills of Galilee, he decides to stay there. Jesus doesn't seem to be bothered. He doesn't seem to be in a hurry. He has this long meal with his friends. He washes their feet. He encourages them because he knows that they're going to be depressed and discouraged and a little bit dismayed about some of the events that are get, getting ready to unfold. Instead of hiding, he walks plainly in plain sight in the crowded streets of Jerusalem to go pray at the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where he's going to be out in the open now and he could be arrested and apprehended and harmed by his opponents. In the middle of that meal with all of his friends, one of his early disciples, one of his closest friends, asked the question that you and I would be asking at this time in the story. 
He says this in John 14, 22. But why, Lord, do you intend to show yourself only to us and not to the world? Judas has got a great question. He's like, hey, yes, you might be having some bad press right now. You might be down on the poles of public opinion right now. But if you could just do more miracles, people would rally to your team. They would rally in your support, and they would surround you. They would protect you, and things will go well if you can just do some more demonstrative acts among us so people can plainly see that you are a God as we've discovered, as we've seen, as we have followed you. But Jesus knew that repairing the world would not happen with demonstrative actions from above. That a different set of events needed to occur in order to heal and to fracture the world that he loved. It was going to come from the bottom, life upon life, very slowly, person to person, life change after life change, and then slowly over time, this movement would build and it would swell and people's lives would be transformed and then the world would transform from the middle of all of its mess. That's why when Jesus was teaching his friends for the very last time, he gave them this interesting metaphor. He said, my father in heaven is like a gardener who goes out into the garden and he fusses over all of his plants. He checks them all to see if they're bearing fruit or not. And he says, there's a vine that runs through the middle of the garden where the life flow goes to all the different plants. And I'm that true vine. God has given me the power to help grow lives around me. And he's like, and you are those branches. And if you could just attach your life to me, then you will bear much fruit. You will grow. If you choose not to, then those branches will be removed. And they'll be discarded. But here is your chance to be included in what God is doing in the world around you. Jesus' use of a, a garden image has many purposes, perhaps. Some that theologians way above our pay grade would probably be able to talk about. But one thing that dawns upon me is how interesting of a metaphor this is. Why it matters for us in a day like ours. Gardens don't grow overnight, and we wish that they would, right? I mean, don't you wish that you could just go out there and like put seeds in the ground, go to bed, wake up the next morning, and boom, all the work is done? But that's simply not the case. It takes time. It takes a lot of effort. Uh, I was told by somebody that I, in a church I worked for, uh, I had young kids at the time, and she said, well, good luck to you because you can't grow kids and grass at the same time. It's just too tough to do both of them. And it's true. I, I can't grow grass today to save my life. But Jesus is making a point. God's going to take his time. It's not going to happen overnight. He's going to fuss over every branch. He's going to fuss over every plant. He's not in a hurry. He knows it's going to take its time. But once it goes into full bloom, into full growth, that's when his glory will be revealed. This reminds me of an old Chinese proverb that I've never forgotten after the first time I heard it. It said, if your vision is for a year, plant wheat. If your vision is for 10 years, plant a tree. If your vision is for a lifetime, plant people. That's the vision of Jesus. The vision of Jesus is to plant people all over the world, in every community that bears life, that honor his values, that look to him as their source of life, and through them and in them, the world begins to change. Jesus' vision of spirituality is not just what's going to happen after death and the far beyond. If it was, he wouldn't have used a garden metaphor. But if his plan is to renew the world around us, the lives that we love around us, 
the communities that we live, live in among us, if his plan is for that, then there's a whole lot more going on than one prayer at one time so that my anxiety about what might happen after I die can be met. Jesus is wanting to renew everything that we see and know. Which brings us back to the pile of rubble that was the Carlton Tavern. After the regulars were upset, they began to build a campaign to try to get the Carlton back. And they knew it was going to be a risky endeavor. They knew it was going to be tough and challenging. But they, with some team effort from other residents in the community, they went to the, the council that ran their city and they began to ask them to look into the matter because there's got to be some reason why this tavern was torn down when it was supposed to be preserved forever. As the council dug into the weeds of all of the event, they realized that the owners of the Carlton, the new owners, demolished it illegally, and so they decided that they needed to give them a task in order to bring it back. And this is from the very minutes and notes of that council meeting. They required that the new owners of the Carlton build back the Carlton Tavern brick by brick and to make a facsimile of its former structure. Now that term facsimile, many of you have no idea what that is. I want you to imagine a day before a screenshot and a text message, there was a device. It looked like a printer back in the day. You usually had them in offices. And you would put a piece of paper in this printer and you would put a phone number. And because it was sorcery or something, it would go through a landline to another printer-like device in another part of the world and it would print out a carbon copy of the thing that you put in in the printer in your, in your own office. I know it sounds so strange uh, that something like it could ever have existed. It feels weird just talking about it now. But that's what the, security, that's what the city council said that needed to happen. You need to build it back brick by brick, and they could do so because there were plans, meticulous plans drawn up by the historical society when they were in the process of preserving it for good. And so it took six years from the moment that it was Brought to demolition in 2015, in the spring of 2021, the Carlton came back after the uh, COVID lockdown restrictions were lifted in England, and people got to visit their beloved tavern once again. Now, if you look close enough, and many of the regular customers can show you, there's scuff marks in the light fixtures. There's uh, different wear and tear upon the seats and the stools and the bar furniture that was in the previous building. And if you were to ask them, aren't you upset that there's still signs of demolition, there's still marks and there's a marring and there's some sort of a, a brokenness about this building, they actually enjoy the errors and the, the build back and the facsimile because it tells their story. The story of how there was a tavern and there wasn't a tavern and then it came back. In some strange way, the Carlton Tavern is the same, and it's different at the same time. It's my contention that this is the vision that the Scriptures give about God's world. God's world is not returning back to a pre-fallen Eden, erasing all the struggles and hardships that the world has gone through all this time. But the Bible tells us that, it's, that God is building a city, a new Jerusalem, and the book of Revelation is clear on this, that there's going to be a new city where God's going to dwell in the midst of it, and all of God's people from every tribe, tongue, and language are going to find themselves there as the reward of their faith and the reward of the suffering of Jesus on the cross. 
What I love about the book of Revelation is that it says that there's 12 different gates along the city walls of this new Jerusalem, and those gates are always open. This is not a place of stifling exclusion, but of a wide embrace of grace. Because as this building is being constructed, and as like pilgrims were making our journey there, there's a voice from the middle of that city and it's calling out and it's asking all of us if we would heed that voice, we can find our way through those open gates into that city and receive the reward of our salvation and the gift of our faith. So why does all this matter? Why do we make a fuss about Easter every single year? It's our contention as the people of God that ever since that first Easter, the world hasn't been the same. It may not have been recognized at the very beginning. It may have only been impacted by the few small critical people that were followers of Jesus who were with him after his resurrection. But since then, life upon life, plant after plant in the midst of God's garden has been growing. It's been expanding. It's been multiplying. And all around this world, Good things have been happening because good news is being shared and God's world is being put back together. Yes, there are times and seasons and events that that try to tempt us to rupture our hope that things are being put back together. We can think about the war in Ukraine right now and as it continues to rage on. We can think about earlier this week that massacre and that unfortunate thing that happened on that subway bus stop in Brooklyn. We could say, see, the world isn't being put back together. But if you and I could rub our eyes, if we can look closer, if we can ask some questions, if we can seek for stories, we will find life upon life, person to person, God is putting the world back together. And there's an invitation for all of us to find ourselves in the midst of that great work. There's an old writer by the name of G.K. Chesterton that uh, folks in the church read from time to time who did not grow up as a Christian. He uh, wasn't a religious person until later in life, but he became a Christian and he announced it to his friends one day. And they were all so puzzled why someone as naturally skeptic, skeptical and really analytical Uh, Someone who thought about his own life and not the needs of others, like G.K. Chesterton, would choose, almost seemed like out out of the whim, to become a Christian. So they asked him, why did he do it? And this is what he said, and it's something that I always remember. He said, the more that I considered Christianity, the more that I found that while it had established a rule and an order, the chief aim of that order was to give room for good things to run wild. That's been my story. Ever since I began to follow Jesus in the middle of high school, year after year, season after season, life after life, I see good things run wild. So my advice to all of us, particularly during this holy week, is to stay close to the groups of people who are seeking to follow Jesus. Because as we do so, we'll get a good seat and a good perspective to watch good things run wild among us. Let's pray together this morning. God, we rejoice in you because of Easter. God, we don't understand. Our minds can't wrap around all that your crucifixion, being abandoned at the cross, being laid in a tomb, for you to be vindicated on Easter morning, all that that means. But what the ancients have told us is that when you brought Jesus, out of the grave, Father, 
that you brought all the world with him. And we think that includes us. That includes the people that we love. That includes the people that we're at odds with. That includes the people who have offended us. That includes those whom we have offended. We think that your grace is matchless and that it is not a respecter of persons, but it seeks and saves and restores and heals and builds up. So God, this day as we meditate upon these stories, think about our own lives and lift our voices in song and pray our prayers. God, I pray that you draw near to us as we draw near to you and that you show us that you are, you, are, you are the resurrected God, the one vindicated from death, who vindicates all those others who sit in death and darkness, who seek to be saved. So God, come save us now. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people set together. Amen.